So I guess the overarching topic I want to talk about tonight could be called just action. You know, a, a, lot, of, a lot of times there can be uh, the confusion or the misunderstanding, or at least sometimes we can feel as though as we've been practicing like this cultivating awareness and we just keep, we keep saying whatever occurs, just being with it, being with it, really total radical non-interference, right? Which is amazing to really understand what's going on. But in the beginning, it can be confusing when people think about, well, when I'm in my life, what does that mean? Does this mean complete radical, I mean, you don't do anything, right? So it doesn't make sense, but it's something that um, sometimes people get confused about. They go, are we uh, somehow abdicating engagement, choice, decision in life? Are we, does um, living with awareness mean awareness doesn't care and so I don't care about whatever's going on in life? And of course, of course that's not true, but I want to talk about how it works. That's one thing that's been coming up. Another thing that sometimes comes up, well, quite frequently, is uh, underneath that a sense of, well, doesn't it seem like anything we do? And quite a few people have said that, some here and on other retreats, that we're supposed to see that wanting is suffering and confusing, but it seems that anything I do is from wanting. And then we think, well, I, I want to be enlightened. If I didn't want to be enlightened, I wouldn't practice. If I didn't want to support my family, I wouldn't work. If I didn't want to, like that. And some of that's the confusion of using the word want in a very global way. But I remember someone said years ago on a three-month retreat, said, what? without wanting an aversion, what would I do? Just sit in my room for the rest of my life? <laughs> I felt kind of sad at that, but that's kind of like the bottom line, what we're used to. So this Buddhist teaching is certainly not about becoming passive and quiescent in life. Even he, as as a monastic renunciate, was an incredibly active, engaged human being, engaging with people all the time. So that's not what this is about. In fact, there's one sutta, just one line where Buddha says, a wise person is known by their actions. Their actions. It is through the activities of one's life that one's wisdom, one's discernment shines. So that's really getting right to the point. The heart of how our wisdom manifests, he's saying, is in our actions, that that's how we can, can tell. So what does that mean? What does it mean when he's talking about actions in that way? That's more what I'm going to talk about. But so you can see awareness practice is not to abandon acts in the world. I mean, we couldn't, but to allow wisdom when there's the moment of understanding before we act that gives uh, our mind, awareness, a moment of choice. Without awareness, it's like that person said, it's our knee-jerk reaction to so many situations we're faced with is to respond with wanting or aversion, or at least it's all about me, me, me. You know, it comes from what's going to make me feel the best. That just seems normal. But as wisdom grows, 
And as there's more steady awareness that there's just some knowing of what's going on when the situation presents, there's the potential to respond in a much more wise and appropriate way. So it's not about not responding, but it's about not responding out of this um, reactivity. But what does the Buddha mean by action? When he says the actions of a wise person show who's wise, does it mean that every action we do has to be somehow amazing? You know, does it mean that every action is somehow only serving being? You know what I mean? You can't just, just go to the store and, and buy some pretzels, you know. Everything has to have like a, a huge meaning. <laughs> and that's of course not, <laughs> not it. Action is very specific, the way the Buddha talks about it. He says, intention, the word chetana, volition, I tell you, is action, kama. The word kama or karma is literally translates as action. Intention, I tell you, is action, is kama. Intending, one does action by way of body, speech, and mind. So what he's saying is the heart, the heart of every action isn't in the movement how it looks or even the results, which is out of our control anyway, but it's the movement of mind, this chetana, this volition that's at the heart of every action, which is really what, what um, determines, in a way, is kind of too strong a word, the, the, the wisdom, the wholesomeness, the unwholesomeness. Just talk about that a little. So intention, many of you know, but if you're new, it's, this, it's a very, it's just a little mental impulse in the way the Buddha talks about it that leads to action of even thought, speech, and body. It's like a little uh <laughs> in the mind. Sort of like the energy gathers together and then leads to action. Without that, without that intention, there wouldn't be movement, there wouldn't be speech, there wouldn't be action. And it's meant to be happening in every moment. So most of the time we don't notice it. And often when we do notice it, it's something that's very easily identified with as me. You know, what do you mean? It's, it's, but it's just a, another piece in a train of cause and effect. A very simple example, we're sitting, an itching sensation arises in the body. There's a little unpleasant feeling, not quite noticed, a little bit of aversion, and there's the attention, oh, move and scratch it. It's just a whole chain, you know, of cause and effect going on. So that intention, then, is said to be um, the quality of that intention, what makes it wholesome or unwholesome, is the qualities of the state of mind that's coming along with it, that's conditioning it. So that was pretty mild, like barely any aversion, but just a little scratching. But without the intention, we wouldn't scratch. You know, you can be sitting and there's an itch and the mind is kind of very calm and there's awareness of the itch and for whatever reason, aversion, reactivity doesn't come up and there's no movement. There's no need to scratch, right? We're not saying you shouldn't scratch. I'm just saying that's kind of how the cause and, cause and effect works. We tend to focus on the actual action and the effect or result of it. And the Buddha is saying the whole heart of suffering and wholesomeness in actions is in this intention together with the qualities of mind. You've probably 
heard these very well-known two stanzas from the very beginning of the Dhammapada, which is one of the, in, in the canon, the suttas. All experience is preceded by mind, is led by mind, is made by mind. Speak or act with an impure mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox that pulls it. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. That's a very well-known couplet in the Buddhist teaching. And I think it's really quite profound. It really comes to the heart of why you see the power of really devoting ourselves to cultivating and trusting this moment-to-moment receptive awareness that's willing to see whatever's going on in the mind. Because at the mind, moment by moment, is really the seed of all the things, all the speech and action and even thoughts, so that's harder to see, that we do in the world. So it's not that looking at our mind is some kind of esoteric, removed um, activity that has nothing to do, really, that's somehow divorced from living a full, rich life, from becoming uh, more useful, whatever you want to do, person in the world. It's the absolute heart of that. It's the absolute... um, best, if there's any other way, to actually come to understand why we're doing what we're doing and actually have the chance to change that. Because we're really seeing it at the source. You know, and have an idea, I'm going to stop doing this. <laughs> you know, forget it. You just decide I'm going to stop whatever it is. But we're not seeing the motivations that get it going. You know, we're just kind of lost. So I'll go more into that. Or as Dingo Kensi Rinpoche said, Actions are the servants of the mind. So when you think of it that way, when the Buddha is saying the wisdom, the, somebody's wisdom shines through their activities in the world, this is what he's talking about. The motivation, the intention, the quality of heart and mind that's giving rise to our actions. So without mindfulness, of course, it's really easy to miss the motivation a lot of the time, isn't it? Even when we're looking for it half the time, we can't notice it because it all moves so fast. But just to begin to tune in and see, because in, in, you could say in actions, sometimes you could talk about three parts of it. There's the motivation, there's the uh, result, you do the, there's the result of the action, and there's kind of like the external circumstances, the situation. You could say that's one way of talking about thing of an action. And so usually, as I said before, what we tend to really notice, of course, is the action. And we judge is it good or bad or whatever, usually by, by the result, if we get the result we want. But that's not so much in our control. 
So take, I always use this example because I think we can all relate to it really easily. Because the same action could come from very different motivations. And it may or may not have a similar result in terms of what the Buddha is saying. The act, okay, so say you have some, someone you're close to and you have something you really, out of all the love in your heart, want to give them some feedback about. Now, but it could be feedback that you actually know it's not just because you don't like it, but it's something they do and you really do care for them and you can see that it's alienating other people, right? It's not just that you don't like them, that, that so you really, out of love, you do want to tell them. There's a lot of different ways that could play out, isn't there? So, you know, you, if you, so part of the situation is you, you wait and you're really aware of your motivation and you don't say it until you're really feeling you know, kind of clear, meta, you're not feeling aversion, you're really caring for them. So that's one piece, the motivation. That's the best we can do. And there's always a good chance we sort of think we are, I'm going to wait till I really feel like that, but then something happens and they do the thing and you're a little bit off balance and you get over, you say, well, you know, I've really been meaning to tell you this thing. <laughs> and it comes out completely different. It impacts them completely different. Or the the... The ambiance, they come home from work and you, you come home and they're there and you actually don't know or wait to see. Maybe they've had a day from hell. You know, and you don't know. They're just looking fine. You say, okay, here we are together. Have a little, have a little drink and let, let's just talk about stuff. But me, me, they're like a mess. So you dump this thing on them with all the love in your heart and it just crushes them because you didn't have that information. So one, you know, you're doing it out of, out of real metta. And even if you do do it out of real metta and it's the right time in everything, it's not in your control. The other person goes, oh, thank you so much. I've been waiting all my life for you to tell me this. <laughs> <gasps> that would be rare. <laughs> it's a possibility. <laughs> that's, the, that's the result we want, right? <laughs> you feel like, oh, this was a good action. They throw something at us. We think, well, you stupid jerk. But anyway, um, so you, get, you get a sense, though. So the Buddha is saying, a great deal of the time, the result is out of our control. And, uh, because we don't know what's going on with the other person. And often, we don't know the situational information. Sometimes we could find out, and sometimes we can't. So that's a kind of a, an ignorance, not of that we're, we just don't have all the data. We don't have all the information. Everything's like that, you know? It's just not in our control. So to learn to think about what's wise action and what's unwise action and what can we actually be aware of, it comes home again. What's happening in this mind and heart? That's what awareness can see. And that really is the seed to our ongoing suffering or happiness. And we keep going, it's lawful, right? This, this whole practice is lawful. So the good news, which somebody, somebody reminded me today, they said, I said this a couple of years ago, and I thought, that just is a crock. That isn't true. So I don't care if you believe it or not, just keep looking. But it actually is true in my experience, and someday it may be in yours, but probably it is already. I'll keep talking about it. That with steady awareness, the kind that we're cultivating, which isn't, I should do this, I shouldn't do that, but just interest, seeing what's going on. We start to notice the motivations, the thoughts, and what it leads to. That steady, 
That steady awareness is the condition for wisdom to arise. And when wisdom recognizes what's happening, it naturally feeds wholesome states of mind and heart. It's, like, it's, it's really amazing when I started to trust that, which is, it's the way Utejaniya talks, but he didn't make that up, but he just emphasizes that. And I started to say, that's really true. I don't have to figure out the wisdom. I just put in the trust and the steady awareness. The more wisdom recognizes craving and keeps on watching it and sees the suffering, the wisdom isn't feeding it. It's going, look at that, look at that, you know? And at some point, not forever, but just for a month, the craving's put down. When wisdom sees the, the peace of no craving or wisdom sees generosity, it strengthens it in a way. Yeah, you know, it's like leaning in. Just like when, when delusion is feeding anger, the anger gets stronger, right? When wisdom is meeting the wholesome, it strengthens the wholesome. We feel how that feels, and the inclination of our mind and heart is to move towards that, because it's, it's really more happiness-producing. This is something the Buddha really looked at for himself. Oh, here it is. This one sutta that is also very well known, that the Buddha's talking about before he was the Buddha, when he was still doing his practice. Okay, he was probably a little farther along than some of us at this point. (laughs) But it's a sutta where he's talking about two kinds of thoughts. So he's saying, you know, he's he's doing his practice, and he says, uh, as I remained heedful, ardent, and resolute. So he's thinking filled with sensuality, filled with greed arose in me. So have some faith. This is, he's about to be the Buddha. (laughs) He's ardent, he's resolute, he's heedful, and thinking filled with sensual desire arose in him. So cut yourself a break. But then, this is how he meets it, which is our lesson. I discerned, I saw thinking, you know, I saw thinking imbued with sensuality has arisen in me. <laughs> okay, here it is. And that it leads to my own affliction or the affliction of others or the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom. It promotes vexation. It does not lead to unbinding, to release. This isn't a judgment he's saying. He's looking at it with discernment, with wisdom, and saying, oh, here's thinking with sensuality. He's watching what it does. He says it promotes vexation. It leads to my own affliction. It leads to the affliction of others. This is what happens. So he's just watching it, and this is what he sees. As I noticed that it leads to my own affliction, it subsided. Isn't that what we've been saying? As he noticed, it subsided. As I noticed that it leads to the affliction of others, to the affliction of both, as I noticed that it obstructs discernment, promotes vexation, and does not lead to release, it's subsided. Whenever thinking filled with sensuality had arisen, thus it was simply abandoned. You really hear that that's what he's saying is just what we've been doing? And he did it then again, the same, the exact same thing, thinking filled with ill will arose in me, and then thinking um, filled with harmfulness arose in me, and the exact same process that led to affliction and vexation, and on recognizing that and paying attention, it subsided. 
So whatever a person keeps pursuing with his thinking, with her thinking and pondering, whatever we think about frequently, that becomes the inclination of their awareness, of their consciousness. If a person keeps on pursuing thinking filled with greed, then the mind is bent by that thinking imbued with greed. In other words, just what we say becomes a habit. If we keep out of the habit of following thinking with ill will, then the mind gets in the habit of going in that direction of harmfulness. But this is good. He's just seeing, watching how his own mind works. And then, again, the other direction. As I thus remained heedful, ardent, and resolute, thinking filled with renunciation arose in me. Renunciation really means the releasing of clinging. That's what he means. He doesn't mean renunciation in terms of thinking about objects or activities that he should give up. He's talking about this as a quality of heart, a quality of mind. Renunciation as the the letting, letting go. So thinking filled with renunciation arose in me. I discerned that thinking filled with renunciation has arisen in me. And that leads neither to my own affliction, nor to the affliction of others, nor to the affliction of both. It fosters discernment. It fosters wisdom. It strengthens wisdom. It promotes lack of vexation, and it leads to freedom. If I were to think and ponder in line with that renunciation, even for a night, even for a day, even for a day and a night, to think about that, I do not envision any danger that would come from it. So if you want to get lost in thought for a day and a night, get lost in thought of renunciation. So I didn't see any any danger that would come from it, except, he's so practical, except that thinking and pondering a long time would tire the body. (laughs) He's just totally practical. When the body is tired, the mind is disturbed, and a disturbed mind is far from collectedness. So I steadied my mind right within, steadied, unified, and concentrated it. Why is that? So it would not be disturbed. It's just so practical. As I remain thus, and he says the same thing about thinking filled with non-ill will, which we could say is metta or friendliness, and the same thing for thinking filled with harmlessness, which then we could move into compassion. And he says exactly the same things about all of those. And the same thing, whatever one thinks and ponders upon frequently, that becomes the inclination of the mind. So, to say that, you know, there's, there's good news, <laughs> that it isn't just that we're stuck with the kalesas, and even just in the steady awareness, really, the steady awareness, the wisdom that comes from that, in the first case, when you see the thinking filled with greed, for example, and wisdom mind is just watching, 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 and it naturally releases in a moment, this really happens. And it then starts to become more natural that the thinking, the, the, the motivation of non-greed, of renunciation moving into generosity arises. This is really, when we talk about the lawfulness of the Dhamma, this is lawful. It's not necessarily an act of will. It's what happens when wisdom is steady, 
recognizing the suffering and delusory aspect. Whoa, I don't need that. Puts it down. And people have given little examples. And and so it happens on retreat where you can notice it in little ways. Different people have given different examples. We go somewhere where you expect where greed usually comes up and just for some reason one day there's no greed. It wasn't an act of will and it's like a surprise. Where's the greed? It's not here now. And that absence of greed is like a renunciation and the person who's describing this felt it as a kind of calm, a kind of peace. Recognize that. That's a natural unfolding. That's the natural result of wisdom. It's a little moment, but recognizing these actually helps is what helps give us more verified confidence that this is actually happening. Don't just say, oh, this is some weird, weird thing. There's no greed right now, but it's coming back. But really noticing, no, the wholesome motivation has arisen. And when we feel it, when we kind of get familiar with it, uh, it's actually more pleasant than greed. So even we're using the fact that we do tend towards the pleasant, the Buddha uses that, but tend towards wholesome pleasant, it's more pleasant than the unwholesome pleasant. (laughs) It kind of is that way (laughs) until we get to where either one doesn't matter. The same with aversion. You know, people describe, they go into situations here where, you know, just being around people can trigger aversion or judgment or whatever. And then sometime you're waiting for it, doesn't come. Just a sense of friendliness. Just a sense of, oh, okay, you too. You know, my mind, when that first would happen with me, I go, who, who, whose mind is this? This ain't my mind, you know. <laughs> it's like, no, it isn't my mind. The other one wasn't my mind either. <laughs> but, but just to notice. Don't think, oh, I must have been spaced out because I just missed the aversion. For sure it was there and I just missed it. No, <laughs> really feel when there's just like a tender connectedness. And that's non-ill will. And in terms of, of non-harmfulness, one of the, uh, I don't want to say easy, but what ways it really comes up for almost everybody on retreat is towards our own really difficult experience. And you have you even had a moment where you've been really struggling with some painful experience of body, emotion, mind, internally. And you're trying to be mindful, but it, basically there's that blame, there's that negativity, there's that whatever it is towards it. And at some moment, that shifts. What was it that Mark said, honey, it's okay? Is that what he said? Honey, it's okay. But really, they're like, oh, oh yeah, it's like this now. That's the shift. The, the, the harmfulness, because that, you know, digging at ourselves, that blaming ourselves, that judgment, that's really a kind of, you know, abusive mind towards ourselves. It's almost cruelty, you could say. And when that drops, and it's like, oh, it's like this now. What's changed is that motivation in the heart and mind. It's shifted from harmfulness. That's compassion. Compassion's the quality of awareness of heart, mind, chitta that just totally meets the suffering without any negativity. And out of that's where compassion arises. These aren't acts of personal will. This is where the trust really has to come. I can't decide... Okay, from now on, no more greed in this situation. You know how we try that. Oh, I got it. Now, if every time this really horrible emotion comes up, I'll just go, it's okay, honey. You know, that works once, right? Then the next time, you go, it's okay, honey. It's okay. Honey. How come it isn't working? 
because we're back in the outer action and not noticing again the motivation. And what do we have to do to fix it? What? Yes, yes. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> After we, you know, go through trying everything, how do I get back the good motive? Oh, right. I discern that thinking imbued with harmfulness is arising right now. And that's already shifting things. So in the course of our ongoing practice here, cultivating awareness, it really is the lawful way it works that these suffering habits of speech and action and thought do start to shift because we're spending many more moments not pondering them. Actually, a moment of... Well, I'll go to that in a minute. So what they do to the, the two kind of different ways of thinking that the Buddha talked about, that greed, lust tends to switch to renunciation, generosity. Ill will tends to switch to non-ill will or metta, harmfulness to harmlessness, or compassion, karuna. I just want to talk a little bit about those three. Just they're, they're not esoteric. We all know all of them. But just to, just to mention them a little bit to recognize how they arise in small ways through the practice. So as I say, awareness, wisdom in awareness, functions in both ways. It, it helps the unwholesome to dissipate and it strengthens the wholesome. It's actually a, 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 an amazing arrangement. And then it's, we can trust it because it's not something we create. And I keep saying that, it's not an act of will because that's so hard for so many of us to either trust or believe, you know, if it feels like I did it, that's the identification with the chaitana. And when something comes up, like we're saying in one group, wow, it just changed, it feels like magic, you know? And it feels like magic because in that moment there wasn't a sense of noticing or identifying with that sense of volition. It came just, you know, instead of a, a volition to have an unwholesome thought, the volition to have a wholesome one came. Just out of the causes and conditions coming together. This is what makes it wholesome. And it's really helpful to understand that as the conditions are being set in motion, if we continue with steady awareness, wisdom's going to grow. And it's not that we're just going to magically not have any more greed, hatred, and delusion. No, it's a long way down the road. But these little moments, that, like the little ones I just mentioned, they're going to happen. You may not notice them, but you'll start to. It's, it's, it's inevitable. It's just the way nature works. The same as, as nature growing. So I was walking yesterday outside and it was still nice and just thinking in this last week, you've all seen how, how spring is just like, it's amazing, right? It's just sprung up. And, uh, and the, every day, you know, the plants are a little bit higher and the buds are opening. It's like amazing to see. And it's just, just lawful. It comes in its own time. We thought it should have come back in April, but it didn't. And, and in fact, it's, so there's a whole long winter, like two months longer than you want it to be. And you can want and try and water and do whatever you want. Those buds aren't going to come up. Those plants aren't going to come up. There's nothing you can do about it. And at the right time, with all the conditions, they come up. And you couldn't stop them if you wanted to. I guess you should rip them all up, I guess. But you can't really stop them from growing. You can't make them grow faster. You can't make them grow less fast. But this is what happens. But then I thought, I loved it. I had that thought yesterday. But then today came and I thought, oh, that's perfect. 
because that's how it is with our minds. It isn't just better, 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 everything's good, you know? It's like, wow, I'm really seeing something. Tank, big time, lost in the well of delusion. <laughs> you know, whether it's from one moment to the next or one day to the next. And that's just how it goes, up and down, up and down, up and down. But so we have to, to really, again, like the Buddha said, I discern thinking imbued with ill will has arisen in my mind. Not, oh no, forget it, beat your breast. No, thinking imbued. And then as I notice, it fades. And there's a moment of compassion towards myself. So just really having a long range view, the patience, that it really does occur naturally. But as, it, as we get a little more familiar, or a lot more familiar, and trusting of these qualities of heart and mind, of the renunciation, just the opening up the release of clinging, of metta, friendliness, of compassion, then as, as we can cultivate skillful means, we can also consciously incline the heart, the mind, in the direction of renunciation, of generosity, of metta, of compassion. You know? So as, as we learn to recognize the wholesome, then it's actually an act of wisdom. There's times when you can actually choose and in, in, in a more conscious way to move into the wholesome. It, again, in simple ways. And this is not, as, well, simple example. So take, take um, renunciation. So food's a good place to play with it on retreats. So, so say you're walking into the dining room. Maybe that's a place where greed didn't arise just naturally. And you notice, okay, great, no greed. Then another time you walk in, I'm just making this up. I don't think this happened. Say you're going towards the back table and you you came in late and back where they put the desserts, right? And there's like one piece of cake left. And you see it. You're not like all crazed, but you see it. You'd like to have that piece of cake, but you notice there's still more people behind you and you kind of think, you know what? Yeah, I'd like to have it, but I can leave it. I don't need it and let someone else have it. Simple sense of renunciation, moving into generosity. And then you keep watching and you really, you feel the happiness of watching someone else take that cake and eat it. And it's, uh, it's actually a nicer happiness than shoveling that thing down your throat, you know? <laughs> it's gone in two minutes and then what, you know? Did it make you that happy? Maybe. <laughs> you had a hard day, maybe. Maybe you need it some days. <laughs> but other days you can really say, no, let someone else have it. So that's a, a little more like conscious intention where we incline the mind and you keep paying attention. And as we, uh, just in regular vernacular, we kind of feel how it feels. You notice the quality of, of ease, of peace. That's how it would be for me. It might be different for you. Or a, a, a kind of a happiness to be like, oh, yeah. yeah. Then we may cling to it, whatever. But, but, but actually appreciating the happiness of wholesomeness isn't necessarily leading to clinging at all. So don't be afraid to let in to awareness that kind of pleasantness, that kind of happiness. Don't think, oh, no, that's just ego feeling happy. I'm so great, I'll let him have the cake. Don't do that to yourself, unless it is. But if you really kind of feel that, that I mean, it might be. But then it wouldn't actually feel happy. It wouldn't actually feel so good. When you go, wow, oh, look at that, it makes me happy. That is something that we can actually contemplate. Like I mentioned today, the Buddha said, contemplate your generosity because it actually brightens the heart and mind. It actually leads on to more wholesomeness. It, it, it inclines the mind and heart in that direction. 
which is a lovely direction. It doesn't lead to the affliction of oneself. It doesn't lead to the affliction of others. So you get a sense what I mean. I'm just giving little examples, but this we can do in big ways in our life or in small ways. Or the renunciation just of putting down, maybe it doesn't always move into generosity, but just the simplicity of, of not needing to let yourself be run by the craving. Just whatever it is more simple. Again, recognize that renunciation, we're talking about a quality in the mind, in the heart, more than not how it looks externally. So um, one could live very simply and be filled with greed and not, you know, not renounce anything. It's probably harder to be really rich and have a lot of things and be really simple. I wouldn't know. But <laughs> what I would say it could probably be possible because it really is the quality in the heart-mind of, of non-clinging. Play with it. See how it feels. And another thing that we recognize from, from all of these, from, gener- from non, non-clinging, generosity, from friendliness, metta, from compassion, non-harmful, but I'll start with the generosity. Like you kind of feel... Like in the sense of the person has the cake or you offer something to anybody and feeling their sense of receiving and your sense of happiness is that, that sense of, of not separate, you know, the sense of um, really, you don't have to get all mystical about it, but that the generosity of one person is the happiness of another, the happiness of another is the happiness of the person who is generous. How do you separate it? This is from... Um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, you know, from this great book where he and the Dalai Lama are having these long conversations about joy. So he's talking about, he says, the concept that we have at home in Africa, the concept of Ubuntu, which um, Bhante Buddha who we teach with, who's from Uganda, I mentioned this in the fall, and he goes, oh, I loved it that you mentioned that, because that's absolutely what we have at home, this concept of Ubuntu. Ubuntu says, a person is a person through other persons. Ubuntu says, when I have a small piece of bread, it is for my benefit that I share it with you. Because after all, none of us came into the world on our own. And you realize that in a very real sense, we're meant for a profound complementarity. It is the nature of things. You don't have to be a believer in anything. I mean, I could not speak as I am speaking without having learned it from other human beings. I learned to be a human being from other human beings. We belong in this delicate network. It is actually quite profound. Unfortunately, in our world, we tend not to recognize this connection until times of great disaster. You know how we do that, and we really want to help other people. We recognize it. But that's really what he's saying. This, this profound connection, what he's saying is just what the Buddha said. It's not an idea that, you know, it's kind of some woo-woo idea, but when we're not acting and seeing and viewing ourselves in the world through the lens of greed or hatred or self-interest, that's how the experience is. I mean, you can still tell I'm me and you're you. It's not that, but it's that sense of what I do affects you, what you do affects me. And this is onward leading, actually, to more wholesome states. I think I had 
something similar from the Dalai Lama. I always like to balance it. Yeah, this is from the Dalai Lama. Buddhism essentially consists of two things. The view, which means an understanding of the interdependence of all things, and action, which can be loosely defined as nonviolence. But if one were to summarize the Buddha's teaching in one word, we would have to say that it is universal interdependence, of which nonviolence is a natural consequence. Since we are all dependent on each other, and all other beings want to be happy and not suffer, just as I do, my personal happiness and suffering are inextricably linked with those of others. This nonviolence does not mean weakness or passivity. It is the deliberate choice of altruism in our thoughts and actions so that it becomes inconceivable to knowingly harm others. But I just want to say from that, the the deliberate choice, and the point I'm really trying to make through our practice here is, without awareness wisdom, we could make that choice, but we really couldn't follow up on it. Because when something comes hard and we're afraid and we don't even recognize it in the mind, we're going to act out of fear, we're going to act out of anger, we're going to act out of greed. The habits are just too strong. And so, but he's saying, but this is the, his way of saying it, or Bishop Tutu's way of saying it, this is the truth of how things are. And when the kalesas aren't distorting our perception, the movement of non-clinging, of generosity, of friendliness, of compassion, are just going to be the natural response, just in little ways. So not saying we should have the idea, now we have to go out and act out of compassion in every moment, because we're not going to be able to do it. But this is what's going to give, hopefully, trying to give us the, the trust to keep, to keep at least having the motivation to re-recognize awareness over and over and over. Trusting that the, the natural wisdom, seeing things as they are, goes in the direction of compassion, of metta, of non-clinging, of other wholesome states. Because that's the way it is. But we have to have, you know, we keep recommitting again and again to ourselves just to look and see. So just to say a little about uh, friendliness and and compassion, I mean, we know what they are. Uh, Metta, non-ill will, non-hatred, and um, friendliness. I think of metta, of non-ill will, as simple connection. And I want to say, even when we use the word metta or loving kindness, often people get the idea it's some real big emotion. It has to be this love, this all-encompassing love that all beings are connected and we're all, you know, you get the drift. But listen to Samedo's definition, Ajahn Samedo's. Talking about metta or non-ill will in regard to difficult people or situations, it doesn't necessarily mean loving it. One is witnessing the unpleasantness in a situation, a thing, a person, or in oneself without creating anything around it. That's what I consider to be metta. I actually love that. So something difficult, a pain in the knee, and one is witnessing that with awareness without creating anything around it. It's just like this. It's like that 
that short quotation I read from Upasaka Key, you know, what is, is. What is not, is not. You don't need to add anything extra. That's kind of what Sumedho's saying about metta. Simple, complete connection. It's like this. Out of that arises, you know, acceptance, clear seeing, friendliness. Not making any aspect of ourself or another person or experience the other, so to speak. Because really in the light of the connectedness of attention, of awareness, then again, there isn't the other. It's just what it is. As the, um, the writer James Baldwin says, an enemy is someone whose story we have not heard. So a lot of our practice with awareness is just to hear the story, this knee pain. I don't mean making up a story. I mean just to hear the knee pain, the sadness, somebody else's pain, whatever it is that's going on. What is it? Without adding anything extra, but without needing to pull away. And this is really what compassion is. Compassion is the sense of... Where's my Dalai Lama thing? He's, of course, Mr. Compassion, the Dalai Lama, so we always use him, his definitions. Anyway, I know it. Compassion is really when the heart-mind is meeting suffering fully, without resistance, without adding anything else. Compassion is that tenderness of heart that's meeting, meeting the suffering in oneself, in another, no different. And what the Dalai Lama says is, how does compassion arise? By being with our own suffering. By being present without adding anything extra, with our own suffering. From that, not needing to shrink back, not needing to resist or turn away from our own suffering, then he says that naturally opens up and spreads out to empathy with other beings. And we can really see this. We can really feel it, you know, the natural interdependence that comes from opening, just being willing to be present with suffering. And so that's why it's so important on retreats, the difficult things that happen and all the stuff we go through, because that's where we're starting to see. What's the difference between all the fighting and it's okay, honey? Just the being with it. How different is the experience when there's compassion and when there's aversion? Huge. And from someone else, you know, even when, when you try to do something to help someone who's suffering, but really this, the seed is our discomfort, to be, because if someone's suffering, we're uncomfortable with it because we're uncomfortable with our own suffering. So have you ever had someone really trying to help you and they're trying to help you, but you can feel that the seed is their discomfort with your suffering? If you can feel that. If, I mean, if, you, if, you've, if you've been sick, you maybe feel that. I've had like in the past, I'm fine now, a chronic disease and everyone wanted to come and tell me, try this, try that, drink this, do that. You know, all of the good intentions, it is, and 10 million things to do. And now there's even more, you know. There wasn't so much internet then. But you could really feel, and I wasn't, this wasn't a judgment, but I could really notice when someone really full intention, but there's a little pressure, a little pushing, and you could feel their dis-ease about, do this, come on, fix this. We don't want to see you like this. Or as someone else who'd been through similar things kind of goes, yeah, it's really hard, isn't it? You know, you feel the difference. And that's not to put any of us down, 
But that's where the, the motivation really is what informs the connectedness. And when there's compassion, we're able to be there. And a whole different way of relating opens up. Our views drop away. And it arises, compassion and metta both arise from just the simplicity of total contact, surrender into it's like this without resistance. It can change everything. So I'll tell this story some of you have heard that I heard on the radio. Where did I hear it? A couple years ago. Remember did the, during the big refugee crisis in Europe a couple of years ago? I mean, not that it isn't not that it's over, but when it was up in the news. And there was a, in Calais, in France, this really big refugee camp that was called the Jungle that sounded really, really packed, really awful. And refugees from Afghanistan and Syria and all over North Africa, Southern Africa, were packed into this place, basically trying to get to England, which didn't want them. So they're trying to sneak out and sneak on trucks and go under the, the channel and get to England. So they're in this camp and, and contained in the camp. Really, it's like a prison. They're not allowed out. So I heard this uh, reporter on the BBC went, uh, visited the camp and talked to different people. And then he was just walking around in the city of Calais. And some of the people were having a big demonstration against having the jungle there, against all the people. So he's interviewing them. And, you know, they're all, oh, you know, just the general. They shouldn't be here, whatever, get rid of them. And, but he found one woman just kind of an average, you know, middle-aged, um, middle-class woman. Very negative. These people are horrible. They shouldn't be here in the protests. And he said, well, have you actually gone there? And talking. She said, no. So she was open enough that she was willing to go with him into the jungle and meet people. So they did, and they went around and talked to people. And so... You know, she talked to some young men who had come and were, had had to leave their family. And they're saying, all I want is a job and an education. When I walk outside the camp just to try to go buy something, some of the truckers kind of beat me up. The police kind of beat me up. They throw me back in here. They won't let me leave. You know, and, and she saw there were horrible conditions. And she thought, wow, I thought this was a free country. But maybe it's not. And she was, just from talking to people, she was able, that connection broke through her view, really strongly held view. And like all our views, we never have all, we never have all the information. It broke through her views, the connection just with individual people. And she decided to go back and volunteer. So she went back and became a volunteer there. Sweet story. There's millions of sweet stories like that. Just, you know, one person doing one thing, not to be a great bodhisattva of the ages, but just because it's doing the obvious, as I heard one teacher say, when, when the connection is there, when the wholesome motivation is driving our actions. So, you know, we can't figure all out how our life should be and what we're going to do and how we're always going to come from the right motivation. But one th- well, one thing I want to say first to recognize, part of what's changing, not part, it's a big part, the habits in the mind, when we say what, what we frequently think and ponder on, that becomes the habit. And you maybe think, well, I'm not thinking and pondering on compassion all that much. You know, it comes up sometimes, but not all that much. I'm not pondering on non-greed a lot sometimes. But every moment of mindful awareness that's just not, you know, distorted by Kalesa, where you just, it's like this. 
It's like this. Every one of those moments is a moment of cultivating wholesome intention. A moment of it's like this. It's non-greed, it's non-hatred, it's non-delusion. And so it's actually shifting the habits of where our mind tends to dwell. We don't notice it because there's nothing special going on. You know, my toe hurts, it's like this. Yeah. But if it's not aversion, that's actually strengthening the habit of wholesome attention, of non-ill will in the mind. And so it's happening kind of like, like you were saying today, getting wet in the fog, where you don't really notice it, as Suzuki Roshi says. You know, you get, go in a rainstorm, you know you're soaking wet. But this is like you go out in a fog and you don't really notice it, but you get drenched to the bone through your clothes and you couldn't point to any moment it happened. This is the power of moment-to-moment awareness. It's what we're doing. So just one last thing. I'll just drop it in. I can't talk at length. I'm saying, how do we keep it up? We do tend to want to go home. And then I, I used to go home and plan how I'm going to always be only act from compassion and kindness from now, you know. <laughs> how long would that last? I'd be beating myself up, at least if not anyone else, within two hours, you know, for not being compassionate. You're not compassionate enough, you jerk, <laughs> you know. But it, because it's, that's coming from a should up here. But using, just using the understanding of moment-to-moment motivation really being the heart of action, how do we keep it up? is really in, in the bigger picture, when like in some if we wanted to be, enli- I want to be enlightened. Like it may not be this thirst, but it's an aspiration, a direction to which we incline our activities. It's like really, I think it's, it's been so helpful for me, and someone brought it up in a group, but it really can be so helpful again and again to take some time with yourself, get really quiet, go and see what is really important, most important to you in your life. What, you know, we go through life making all kinds of choices. Every day a million choices. And I don't mean you have to every time you're going to go to the supermarket have a meditation and say what's really important and what things can I get, not that. But one or two things. So say just to make it easy, say liberation from clinging. Say that was what's really important to you. Not to set that as... I wanting, but to see, okay, that's really important. And then when I'm making smaller decisions in the moment, tuning in, what, what are the conditions that will support that result? The conditions being bringing in awareness and not acting from greed, just seeing what's going on. We, we kind of use whatever our larger aspiration is as a kind of a beacon, a goalpost to tune into in bigger decisions. But it's not like we're always looking there. It brings us back here to help us orient when we're deciding stuff. Because, you know, there's no way we can know what's going to happen, how things are going to turn out. We can plot, you know, our whole life for the next 10 years, and all kind of stuff's going to happen we never even thought about, good, bad, and indifferent. But what we do have is moment to moment the sincerity of our own motivation. Something the Dalai Lama says a lot. You know, he says, he says um, people ask him, and how can he keep, how can he keep with um, the, the Chinese government, you know, how can he keep advocating nonviolence? How can he keep having compassion? And uh, besides saying, you know, that they, maybe the Chinese government took my country, I'm not going to let them take my heart and mind. That's one thing. 
But what he says again and again, he says, I can only trust in the sincerity of my motivation. I can't know how my choices and actions are going to play out in the future. We can't know that. But all we can do is keep coming back and looking at and trusting the sincerity of our own motivation, just with honesty. And when we, you know, blow it in our mind, then we meet that again with the sincerity of awareness, with the sincerity of non-ill will. And this is really uh, our action in the world. Whatever way in the bigger picture we choose to show up, whatever it is we're doing, it's going to be informed by our motivation in the moment. So that's just what I wanted to share tonight. Oh, I just want to read one little haiku, which doesn't really fit in here, but it does in a way. Because it's like, sometimes when we say awareness doesn't care, or even talking about the wholesome, there can still be that feeling in the back that somehow either life gets better and better, or we don't, we don't, we don't feel the poignancy, we don't feel sadness, we, but we do. Everything still happens, and people we love die, and things get hard. That isn't going to change. And the tenderness, it doesn't mean we don't feel it. We feel it more, but maybe without aversion. So just this haiku I love from Isa, the Zen master a couple of centuries ago, it said he wrote it on the death of his young daughter. And it just goes, um, this dewdrop world is a dewdrop world. And yet, and yet, that's our koan. A dewdrop world that's always changing. And yet, and yet, So thank you.